Welcome to the Global Discussion, Discussions with Creatives, Leaders and Thinkers. My name is Simon Hodgkins. Absolutely delighted to be joined today by Jennifer Kenny. Jennifer, you're very welcome to the podcast. Let's begin by asking you to introduce yourself to our international audience. Tell us a little bit about your journey and all the wonderful things that you're involved in. So over to you, Jennifer. Super, Simon. Thank you very much. Delighted to be here. Much appreciated. Um, so a little bit about me is... Currently, I work in developing innovation capacity for organizations, um, that is both through programs and technology. But my background is I'm actually a geologist um, out of UCD, good old Dublin University. Um, and I then ended up doing a postgrad in geotech. Um, but I discovered fairly quickly that I was the wrong gender. As a matter of fact, I didn't even have to discover it, they told me. Um, so I went into um, uh, information technology, ended up working for, for Accenture in London, for Anderson Consulting then in London. Um, so that was the equivalent of a computer science degree in those days. And that was, you know, then that's what I did. And I ended up coming over to America um, and working over here for an incredible startup um, that uh, was one of the first icon-based interface um, uh, programs, applications. Um, and so that was kind of my intro into Silicon Valley. And since then, I've been working really on the interface between innovation technology and business um, and love love that space, love the translation, love the interpretations, love the sophistication required to be able to do it, love working with the deep, deep um, technologists, so much respect and appreciation for them, being a bit of a nerd myself, um, and also, you know, working with the business as to how do we actually make that, you know, profitable and productive for everybody. So that's what I do. So it's a real... I suppose San Francisco, Silicon Valley kind of feel to that business. It's kind of growing. It's exciting. It's challenging, I'm sure. Could you maybe just give us a, a little minute or so in terms of what that company focuses on? Um, uh, in terms of what my company focuses on? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So we do two things. <clears throat> we do the thought leadership work that I do, which is, you know, the speaking, authoring, mentoring, just finished writing a book. Um, and then on the other side, we actually have a um, innovation community, innovation capacity development platform. It's a bit of a mouthful, um, but that platform is actually designed to work in conjunction with the programs that I run to help people build up that capacity inside companies. So we're looking to effectively democratize innovation, which I kind of love the idea of, um, and just make it so that we go back to re-embracing the fact that we're really all innovators. Like if you meet little kids, they're always so innovative and so creative. And somewhere along the line, we beat that out of ourselves or we don't do it to ourselves. Schools and universities, I guess, do it to us. But so it's how do we bring innovation back as a force for progress and a force for good inside companies? Um, and uh, that can be everybody, you know, working with people everywhere from people who have, you know, two, three PhDs and 100 patents to their name and people who are doing, you know, document processing in banks to serve customers. Um, and I think the innovation aspect is relevant for all of us and it makes life more enjoyable, more interesting. And then also one of the key things that we're doing is we're focusing on the idea of autonomy. <clears throat> so autonomy is a pretty different approach to how organizations work today. Um, but I think it's hugely relevant for, you know, the next, the future generations who aren't going to 
tolerate being a widget or a cog. So that's what we do. Yeah, I love that. And for people watching this episode, obviously they can mm -hmm. see the the book, the innovation mindset <laughs> over your right shoulder. Yes. Um, and you know, this proven method to fuel performance and results. Yeah. And I wanted to say that because people obviously just listening to the audio version may not be aware of that. But yeah, um, the innovation mindset, uh, it's relatively new. Yeah. So could you maybe tell us a little bit about the process, what made you write that book, and maybe give us a little bit of insight into the innovation mindset? Yeah, I'd be delighted to. Surprise, surprise. Um, so the the book writing process, I, I once likened it to having a child, you know, producing a baby without a deadline. It's absolutely brutal. It's worse than having a child. So it is, um, at least it was for me. Some people might be a lot more efficient about it, but I set out, I met with the publisher when uh, they, you know, I realized I'd found someone who was interested in what I was doing. And they said, um, you know, what kind of book do you want to write, Jennifer? And I said, well, I'd like to write one that I'm not embarrassed by. And they said, well, we think we can do better than that. So the goal there was to produce something that was perpetually useful. You know, the ones where you write in the margins and you do stickies at the top and stickies at the side and you talk to people about bits of it and you photograph bits of pages and stuff. I wanted to write one of those. And I wanted to write one of those for the people that I have worked with and that I hope to work with in the future, um, <clears throat> because they are they are people who want to contribute to society through what they can bring to the table, through their innovation. And a lot of times they know how to do technical innovation, but they don't necessarily, or even business innovation, but they don't necessarily know how to practice innovation. So the idea in here was that innovation is not about just about ideas. It's not about light bulbs. It's not about having brilliant people come up with brilliant ideas. It's a lot more than that. It's actually about the practice of innovation as a human practice. Um, and so that's what the book is about. It's stepping people through what those practices are, how to apply them, um, how they can have an impact on, you know, what they're trying to do, both with interdisciplinary innovation and cross-functional co-invention and things like that. So that's what the book is about. And then Gil Pratt, who's the chief scientist for Toyota, did me a massive favor. Thank you, Gil. He encapsulated kind of what the book is about. So I'm going to read it to you. It's only one second. I strongly recommend the innovation mindset to anyone who wants to learn how to do the more challenging part of innovation, the transformation by human teams of inventions into innovations. So it's trying to get to that innovation being the adoption of practices in communities, as opposed to, you know, innovation being I had a brilliant idea and we're all good now. So that's what yeah, I love about. that. That's really, really good. Um... And it, look, I know you, the way you've described the book writing process, um, yeah. but it's not your first foray into the books because you were involved to some degree in another book, weren't you? Which yeah, was... yeah. Well, I was involved in, so I'm on the faculty of a little business school down in Australia. It's not that little now, um, called Thought Leaders Business School. And they're a phenomenal group of people. Um, and they basically help people understand how to commercialize their thinking. So we help people. I'm on the faculty. Um, and so that was with 16 other thought leaders. And so we each did a chapter um, and it followed the the arc of the heroine's journey through what the hell do we do now after COVID? What the book was actually called What the Hell Do We Do Now in classic Aussie, Aussie fashion. Um, so I did a chapter for that on the design thinking work that I do. Um, and that was that was just tremendous fun because you had a whole team doing it. But when you're out there on your own, 
um, your publisher, your publishing house becomes really important because they're your team. So I now have a team at my publishing house and I'm, I've given them, we're in, into second round edits on my next manuscript. Um, so they're, and they're phenomenal team. Um, I'll, I'll give, can I give, can give a plug for page two? Yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah, they're great. They're great. They, they've made the, they've made a potentially very painful journey a lot easier. Very good. And a lot more fun and a lot more useful because we ended up being number one in new releases and number one, this is all on Amazon, obviously, but um, number one in business and leadership number, you know, in the top 50 in anyway, management and leadership. I don't remember all the categories, but yeah, it was pretty good. Well, I, I, I love the title. Mm -hmm. What the hell do we do now? Because that was a real guide for enterprises, wasn't it? In sort of, yeah. OK, well, COVID-19 and beyond what? what happens now and so that was great yeah. and it was kind of this amalgamation of this sort of think tank of people uh coming together and of course yeah. uh the great success that we're seeing with the innovation mindset and did you say you're working on another another book yeah i'm working on another book and what do you do you want to tell us a little bit about that <laughs> or is it punishment. all under wraps um yeah no 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 it's not under wraps um we're we're st we're still working on exactly what the title is um, but one of the biggest drivers of innovation that we haven't tapped into is actually gender balanced teams. Um, and some of the companies that I've worked with have deliberately gone out and done that. Um, and they have discovered the enormous impact it has. And the metrics are hugely compelling. So my big question was, wait, now, if the metrics are so compelling and we're all sitting here knowing that there's an opportunity there and there's plenty of women coming out of universities as powerful resources in, you know, engineering, technology, finance, operations, wherever it is, why are we not managing to make this happen? And so the book that I that I'm writing now, which has taken me 20 years to write, um, is really making the shift from it being a social justice conversation to being a value proposition um, and very clearly spelling out then how to go about implementing that. Um, because my belief is that the majority of people actually do want to make this work because we're smart and we know that it'll help us deal with our planetary crisis, it'll help us deal with our innovation capacity, it'll help us deal with you know huge areas of corporate performance. So you know, it's not in our best interest to not do this. So the only reason we could be not doing it is because we don't know how to. So that's what I'm trying to set out in this book because we I've done it for, for different clients and I've seen the impact and I'd love to be able to bring it to other people. That sounds wonderful. And it, it's kind of leading me down the the thought process of this technology world and landscape that's you know mm -hmm. forever changing getting seems to be getting faster and faster and more yeah. impressive by the day and then you've got yeah. this whole gender bias diversity sustainability mm -hmm. type challenges issues and yeah. opportunities I suppose yeah um uh, thrown in there and I, I want to maybe talk a little bit about that changing landscape if I can with you Jennifer yeah. because Obviously, you you've advised and work with very large organizations, Fortune mm -hmm. 500 organizations. Yeah. Um, but the the landscape and I'm going to mention AI and things like ChatGPT mm -hmm. and Midjourney <laughs> and all the good stuff. Right. But but whether it's robotics or mm -hmm. uh, IoT or yeah. AI in particular, um, you know, we've been through the, we're going through the web 3.0, if people still use that term, you mm -hmm. know, we've seen meta go heavily into metaverse and now coming yep. out with a, well, now we're looking at AI a bit more. 
but it's a very rapidly changing environment. Mm-hmm. And just from my perspective, which is obviously not your great insight and perspective that you've been working on uh, in innovation, but it seems to me that we're at this step change. It almost seems like mm-hmm. it's changing gear now. It seems like we're going almost through a revolution when it comes to the technology as the machines sort of get more and more involved and are getting smarter and smarter. Now, yep. there's bias in that. There's, you know, there's problems in that. There's inaccuracies in that. But I'd love to get your initial thoughts on on that kind of area of discussion when it comes to innovation. Yeah, so... Um... A lot of people are concerned about it. I mean, particularly with the AI and chat GPT work, you know, people are going, oh, what's this going to mean for, you know, people who write and what's it going to mean? And my response to that is always, look, you know, 20 years ago, we were terrified that, you know, printers and computers were going to make us redundant. And all that it's done is it's allowed, it's unleashed our creativity and our innovation drive. Um, and so I very much welcome the idea that, Um, technology will actually take away the drone repetitive work um, and that we need to get really smart about understanding how to do that. And I don't mean repetitive in terms of a manufacturing kind of thinking, but I mean repetitive in terms of, you know, I need to write um, a couple of paragraphs for my next book. Well, chat GPT can probably do that for me if I give it enough content. So I don't have to spend two hours doing that because that's not massively creative. It's something I just need to get out there. Whereas the more creative work is really around, you know, how do we learn how to drive greater enjoyment, satisfaction, not productivity and performance necessarily, but value for each other in terms of what it is that we value. And then how do we also turn that around to tackle some of the enormous problems, you know, that we basically have by burning ourselves off the planet. So those sort of issues to me are much more where uh, humanity could be focusing their energies. And then on the flip side of that, if we continue to drag, you know, racism and bigotry and misogyny and all those things with us that's just that's you know a ball and chain from the past so to me that's just slowing us down and of course we're going to blindly and inadvertently build some of that thinking into what we're doing but we don't have to if we set out deliberately design more diverse thinking and more diverse perspectives and more diversity in general into our projects and programs, then we're going to have less of the energy drag, right? Because I think that um, if we really begin to recognize it as it's a ball and chain that we don't need, it's not relevant, it doesn't serve us. All it does is, you know, make, excuse the expression, jerks feel good about themselves, which who cares? So to me, it's much more interesting that we can leave that behind if we design intentionally to bring in many different lived experiences, many different perspectives, many different interpretations. And ultimately, our, our, our final interpretations are going to be a lot more sophisticated. And from there, we do our design work. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And I think it's interesting when um, when you look at the the collaboration, just we were talking about one of your, your previous books there with the collaboration. Mm-hmm. And when it comes to innovation and maybe leaving the bias at the door as as much as we can as humans, I suppose. Yeah. Um, it really is that that diversity, that inclusion of of wider, broader thinking from others, isn't it? When it comes to yeah. innovation, it's such an important element. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I would go one step further with that, Simon, and say that the collaboration piece is we can work together. So I can tolerate you and we can work together. And that's fine, but that's like the bottom rung of the ladder. I would like to be able to see us, and this is what I work with people on, is to where we can actually co-invent. So as as uh, uh, um, E.O. Wilson says, the, the jumping together of snapses. So how do we actually co-invent rather than one person inventing and going on a linear path? How do we literally riff or jazz our brains together to come up with, with, with thinking and practices and designs and opportunities that we could never do alone? And I think that, you know, for me, I've had this wonderful opportunity of living in this enormously diverse and incredibly rich environment, which is Silicon Valley. I mean, Silicon Valley is, is a smorgasbord for me of every single possible way of thinking. Um, and I think that once you begin to appreciate that and begin to appreciate people's different interpretations and perspectives and lived experiences and all of that, you know, it's a delight. I mean, it's diversity at its, at its what it really is, which is, you know, there's a massive bell curve of human thinking out there and you get to play on the whole thing if you just pay attention. Um, so to me, that is the delight of it. It's like, why would you not partake of the delight? Does this does this feed into then this sort of um, what you what you what we term this regenerative value creation? Yeah, 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 absolutely. Absolutely. So I'm also a partner in Now Partners. There's a fantastic global group. Um, of thinkers and leaders and, and implementers who are looking to tackle the, the climate crisis, right? And, and uh, so the regenerative thinking is systems thinking at its best. Now, as a geologist, I'm a dyed-in-the-wall systems thinker because geology is the mother of all systems thinking, right? So, so a lot of what I do is I apply systems thinking to processes and practices at, in, at work and in companies. And then the regenerative economy is really about how can we make everyone on the planet a systems thinker so we can see ourselves as part of the system. And the system is much, much bigger than us because it is what we live on and survive through and thrive through. Um, and a lot of why we're stuck where we are right now is because we don't know how to think like that. Um, and so the regenerative economy is really bringing that thinking or demanding that that thinking come into play um, to where we all start understanding our world in that way. And that, again, is it's a fabulous invitation for people. And I think it's something should be taught in kindergarten. But, you know, <laughs> and when, yeah, you're what, spot on. That's exactly. Yeah, thank you, Jennifer. What about the again from your perspective and your your vantage point i mean there's a lot of challenge as well though i mean so mm -hmm. there is this Absolutely. this opportunity yeah but what do you see as some of the biggest roadblocks or some of the biggest challenges that we're struggling with today i think the biggest well so there's the tactical pragmatic ones and then there's a more sort of you know general philosophical one i think general philosophical one is fear um people are afraid they're afraid to change they're afraid of the future they're afraid of a whole lot of things and I think that creating environments where people don't have to be afraid, um, I think is step number one, where we can actually be creative, make offers, co-invent, 
without being penalized for it and recognizing, you know, I've got a lot of people on my team right now that are in their, you know, early, mid twenties and they're wonderful. They're phenomenal people, but you see the learning gap between when you come fresh out of college and what you actually need to learn to be able to function in highly complex adaptive systems with other highly complex adaptive human beings. And so we don't give ourselves enough room to really be able to kind of expand and grow in that space. So I'd say fear would be the biggest one. And how do we strip that out of organizations and make it so that people don't need to be afraid to, to learn, to grow, to invent, to co-invent, to design, to make offers. Um, so that would be, would, would be one. But then I think some of the other things that show up for me are there's an awful lot of noise at the moment, right? We're jumping up and down, excited about, you know, the next AI, the next chat GDP, the next whatever it is. And what we're doing is we're playing the short instant gratification game. Whereas the long game is so much more compelling, but that's not what we talk about. We talk about the, the widget, the novelty. And I understand that that's kind of the way as human beings were wired a little bit, but I think we're now reaching the point of, of you know, sophistication in terms of our consciousness that we could actually talk about the longer, longer game um, and that we could start bringing younger people into that conversation because they're already having parts of it and it's more relevant for them than it is for someone like me with white hair. So it's, it's how do we begin to make the longer game part of our daily conversation as opposed to, you know, just the soundbite stuff. Yeah, which is yeah, some of yeah. what you're trying to do with this, and I I appreciate that. You yeah. know, with these conversations, it's yeah, more. No, I day. appreciate you saying that. Yeah, yeah. thank you. Um, and then I suppose the I don't know whether it's the democratization of knowledge, or at least a lot more of the world's population to some degree can access knowledge today that maybe mm -hmm. wasn't available to them before. Yeah, yep. which I think helps to some degree. Um, but there's still a very big um, disparity, isn't there, between the opportunities and uh, an unlevel playing field, I, mm -hmm. I suppose. Yeah. And it, it, it kind of also the other thing that I wanted to ask you about as well is because I know you've been involved uh, quite heavily. I mean, as the board chair as well with the How Women Lead. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I, particularly when you mentioned Silicon Valley, because to some people, you know, it is exactly what you what you described. It's this smorgasbord of great thinking and, you know, mm -hmm. some of the best technologies and companies in the world come out of Silicon Valley. Uh, but there has also been this uh, lack of, uh, I suppose, uh, women, females in technology. I think that's mm -hmm. been recognized. There's been pay disparity in lots of areas and still is. Yeah. Um, but I would be interested just maybe if you could just tell us a little bit about your work there. And I suppose today, whether it's the leadership committee with, uh, you know, women on boards and the work that you do there, uh, because I think it, back then it was it GWLN was the. Yeah, it was. The acronym, yeah. But it's now Simon how women, how women, stuff. how women lead now. Right. So, yeah. 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 Could you maybe so, tell us a little bit about the importance absolutely. of that? Because it is it is critical to this whole melting yeah. pot that we're talking about. Yeah, absolutely. So, so I think one of the things um, of being an extremely privileged white woman working in Silicon Valley, which I consider myself, even though I'm an immigrant, um, is um, is you realize that if we don't change the, the narrative for women globally, we can't just change it in little pockets. 
So we have to change us globally. Um, and so um, GWLN, which is a global women's leadership network, we're running these phenomenal leadership programs. Um, and when I took over as chair of the board, we were um, we were doing this incredible work, but we weren't able to sustain it because it was all done, you know, pro bono. And we were flying people in to do these great programs and changing their lives and all that wonderful stuff. Um, and they were kind of getting a, a feel for what Silicon Valley was like and what they could do. And then they could take that home. And it was very much about their autonomy and very much about enabling them. We weren't going in to sort of rescue them as foreigners. We were bringing them to our space and going, here's how you can take it back to yours. And, and to me, that was very important differentiation. Um, so, so from that perspective, then what we did was we got together with four other of the leading um, women's leadership not-for-profits in, in California, and we went for a Gates grant. And thank you very much, Gates grant gave us two million. Um, and then what we did was we rolled that up in under uh, How Women Lead, which is um, run by a, a colleague of mine. And we have, there, there's 16,000 women in the network. And the network is both, both locally here and also globally. Um, and that just proved to be a much more effective way of making what we wanted to make happen, happen. And then subsequently, um, How Women Lead branched, branched off and produced How Women Invest. So How Women Invest is a venture fund that invests exclusively in women-owned startups. Um, and that's locally in the US, um, you know, for, for financial and, and um, uh, regulatory reasons, it's, it's in the US. But there are, one of the things that we did that I am so, so proud of, and this was um, Judy Abrams and Erica Kramer put together, they, in the US, you're allowed to have 200, up to 250 limited partners in a venture fund. Now name one male-led venture fund that has more than maybe 25 partners. But we went, no, we're going to democratize <laughs> again um, investment. And so we have 249 limited partners. That means there's 249 women who are learning about investments, who are learning about startups, who are investing in other women, who are empowering other women, who are in the conversation, who are part of the community, who are available to that group of women to be able to help them grow their businesses, the ones that we invest in. So the concept is just phenomenal. Um, and for me, it was actually an incredible moment because I had done a startup um, in the in 1999, 1920, and we'd won all these awards and we won the same award that Mark Benioff did the year after he did, we could not get funding and I was not going to get a sex change. So, like, so it was a wonderful moment to go, I'm a limited, founding limited partner in a venture firm that invests in women because only two to 3% of venture money currently goes to women. And that's just insane. I mean, that's just, you know, if, if, if there was someone who is actually on the board of directors of the way we run the world, that would be one of their problem issues. <laughs> yeah, I couldn't so, agree more. It is yeah. when you look at it through that lens, it just makes no sense. Yeah, 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 hundred percent. No yeah, let's shoot ourselves in the foot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, well, listen, thank you for sharing all that. That's wonderful, Jennifer. Yeah. Uh, I do want to ask you a few other questions if I can. I'm going to change gear a little bit now, and I want to ask yeah. you a little bit about yourself. I like to find out more about our guests. And okay. 
Uh, we've talked a little bit about your own book, obviously, mm-hmm. your books. Um, yeah. But when it comes to your own learning style, now, you've worked with some of the biggest companies in the world. You work mm-hmm. with some of the most exciting growing companies, and you you advise in lots of different areas. So mm-hmm. how do you keep abreast of all the information in this rapidly changing world? Are you a, you know, do you pick up a book? Do you like to read? Are you an audio book person? Do you listen to podcasts? Mm-hmm. Um, are you searching the internet constantly or is it just through meeting people and discussing? I mean, how does it work for you? Yeah. So I don't look at it as information because if I looked at it as information, it's a giant tsunami and I would just be buried and I'd never get out of bed. So what one of the things that um, I worked with a guy called Fernando Flores and he gave me this wonderful way of looking at it. He's like, it's conversations. People are involved in conversations around things that matter to them all the time. And a book is the culmination of those conversations, right? So even if you take my book and you go, okay, who endorsed it? Oh, great. Jennifer must have been talking to them. What is she writing about? Oh, she's doing case studies on people she's worked with because she was talking to them. And so what you do is you begin to see who are the players in the conversations. And so me, I know what I'm interested in. I know what I'm pursuing. I know what I want to deep dive into and continue to remain current in or ideally even futuristic in. So I'm looking at who's doing the future thinking and who are those people engaged in those conversations. So that allows me to kind of you know, think about sort of almost like little lily pads. It's like I can hop from one place to another and see what are the relevant and interesting books in those spaces. And then I can also say that book's not for me because I don't have bandwidth to read it. And if I try and read everything, I'm just going to drown. So I'm going to read the ones that are extensions of my thinking, extensions of the future. And then occasionally I'll do what I call walkabout, which is I'll I'll pick an area that I'm that is adjacent to what I'm doing that I don't necessarily know a lot about. And I will just gobble up everything I can in that space. I'll be searching for the canon. I'll be searching for the new thinking and I'll be looking at the noise and I'll take out the noise. But what I'm doing in there is I'm giving myself room to just completely free, free explore, which I think we all need to do at various different times. Um so yeah, it's conversations and it makes it so much more fun because then you actually get to know the people. There was a fantastic one. So Safi Bacall wrote an enormous bestseller and um, called Loon Shots. So moonshots for lunatics is how I look at it. But it's fantastically well-researched, beautifully written, absolutely lovely book. And I just wrote to him and said, I loved your book and here's why. And he wrote to me and said, will you endorse my book? And I was like, I'd be absolutely thrilled to endorse your book. And then I wrote to him and said, will you endorse my book when I finally came out with mine? But it is a conversation, right? It's like, how do you understand who's talking to who kind of almost behind the scenes? I'm I'm taking that. I'll be using that from now on. I love the reframing of that because it can feel like you're drowning in information sometimes. So reframing that into a conversation. And I love the walkabouts. I'm a big believer in what you're saying there. Yeah, uh, I was told many, many moons ago that it was just occasionally get into something that you know nothing about because it does help you just broaden that perspective a little bit or make you think about things differently. And I love how you describe that that walkabout, that sort of open freeness to sort of dive into other areas that can help um, yeah. whether they're adjacent or completely different. Yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and it's fun. That's what holidays are for. <laughs> yeah, very good. Very good. Thank you, Jennifer. Uh, the other thing I want to ask you is, 
obviously throughout your career and throughout your life you must have been inspired by certain people there must be people mm -hmm. that you admire or people that have uh, maybe helped you along the way when I ask you that kind of question is there a particular personality type that springs to mind or any 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 person in general that I think really 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 brave people I love really brave people. So when I was 11, Mairead um, Corrigan Maguire, who won the Nobel Prize, right, for her work in Northern Ireland, she was on the TV and she said, forgiveness is a gift we give ourselves. And I was like, I have no idea what that means because I was 11. And but I think that's really important. And I'm going to go explore and understand what that is for myself. And so that's that's been huge in my life. It's like, how do you... How do you create space to move on and be more innovative by not dragging your ball and chain along with you? Right. That's one. that's one thing. Um, and then the other person um, uh, I think would be Nelson Mandela. I have no idea how that man walked out of prison on Robben Island and just forgave an entire country um, and then brought the country together. I mean, that level of emotional and and intellectual sophistication and courage and just leave it be just move into the future with grace and dignity i find that so compelling so yeah they would be my people <laughs> yeah, that's that's great thanks for sharing that and what about the other area i suppose that builds on that is advice now obviously there's the kind of advice that you share with others mm -hmm. that you'd like to share with us today that you think is really important, but maybe also some advice that you've picked up along the way that you've taken to heart that stays with you that yeah. you think is such been so, so helpful to you. Yeah, there's two really small little pieces that I actually got from my mom and dad. Um, so one was that the best investment you can make is in yourself. So, and for me, buying books and reading books is investing in yourself. Um, so I've always believed that you can give more back. It's it's sort of like the idea of you're on an airplane and you know the masks pop out of the pop out of the roof and you're supposed to put your own on first. So the more that you invest in yourself, not from a selfish standpoint, but from an ability then to be able to contribute to others, the more you can contribute. And so I definitely got brought up with that. It's like invest in yourself. That's the best investment you can make. And then the other one is a really, really simple one. So my dad was a structural engineer, but he also, when he was younger, trained as a master carpenter. Um, and I love people who do both the theoretical and the conceptual and the you know high level mathematical, but also have hands-on practices. Um, and his saying was, a bad workman blames his tools. Now, I'll give him the credit and go, a bad work person blames their tools, but leave that. Um, and so for me, it was always like, don't make excuses, go figure out what you need to do your best work and go and ask for it or go and find it somewhere, but go and figure out how you get to do your best work and stop whinging about the fact that you don't have the right tools. Um, so I think just that level of sort of autonomy has been in instrumental in how I've lived my life so far. I love those. Thank you so much for sharing those. <laughs> The other thing I want to ask you as well is I want to squeeze in a question about mm -hmm. the future. And mm -hmm. I want to ask you in particular your own sort of roadmap, your own plan, the next six, 12 months or longer. Yep. How do you go about planning that? What's on your horizon? What are you hoping to achieve? Uh, what are you looking at over the next sort of 12 months or so? Yeah. So how do I go about planning that? Um, 
I think I've, I, so I've always done three to five year plans just as a habit um, and mostly for fun because I like thinking about what's possible. Um, so I do that sort of anyway. Um, but for the coming year, what, what I'm looking at, we've now built out this innovation capacity building platform um, and looking to be able to bring that into um you know, somewhere between six and 10 of the Fortune 500 companies. And we're talking to a number of them already um, because the idea that you could democratize innovation, the idea that you could actually have innovation happen across the org rather than in specialized little pockets, um, the idea that you could elevate the autonomy the mastery and the purpose of the people in your organization um, is very compelling for future focused leaders, right? And people who want to be able to maintain and grow market share or build market share. Um, so we're definitely looking at that. So that's kind of getting that platform out. And it's we already have it a couple of clients, but looking to kind of bring it to more and, and do, uh, do our, our next releases on that one. And then the other one is the book as yet to be named book. Um, that is about this uh, idea of um, gender balance being a corporate performance imperative and how do we actually execute on that and how does it impact innovation capacity, strategic capacity, all of that. So those are my primary focus at the moment. And then there's also hiking the Amalfi Coast with my sister. <laughs> Got to get our priorities right. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, that sounds like a fantastic uh, year ahead. Uh, and I wish you. you the best and continued yeah. success with everything that you're doing. Uh, one you. of the last things I want to ask you as we come to the end of our time together here today, Jennifer, is, is there any other area that we haven't touched on or is there anything else you'd like to share with our international audience? And also, and importantly, if people want to find out more about your speaking, your books, your businesses, the work that you're doing, where's the best place to send people to? Uh, there's two websites. One is for the SaaS platform and the other one is just for me and my speaking. So jenniferkenny.com, J-E-N-N-I-F-E-R-K-E-N-N-Y, the Irish spelling.com. And then the other one is 100% capacity, which uh, the URL is 100capacity.com. Uh, so that talks about that. And then um, other areas, I think the, you know, we, we talked about peripheral areas that impact your thinking, um, that you are not deeply, you know, you're not um, full on attention to. I have two of those. One is the work that um, now Partners is doing around the regenerative economy. And I think that is absolutely critical and essential. And, you know, it's going to make the difference between us staying on the planet and not. Um, and the other one is the thought leadership work that I do in Australia, which is really focused around cultivating that, um, you know, the ability to be able to kind of design your own life. And I think more and more people are going to be doing that and wanting to do that and being given the tools to do that. Um, and I look forward to that because I've discovered that the people who take responsibility for designing their own lives are fabulously fun to hang with. Yeah, I, I really appreciate that because I, I don't know whether it's one of the silver, silver linings of a pandemic, not that a pandemic mm -hmm. is a particularly pleasant thing for anybody, yeah. but um, people have seemed to have taken the time to think about a little bit more about the life that they want to lead and how they want to lead it. And I think that's probably a good thing. Yeah, I think it's, a, yeah, I totally agree with you because it's precious. You know, and I think the older you get, the more you realize how precious it is. And so for me, it's how do you get people the perspectives, the tools, the help, the support to be able to understand that and design that? Yeah, absolutely, Simon. Yeah. 
Well, look, that's a lovely point to end on. And thank you so much indeed thank to Jennifer you. Kenny for coming today to speak to me here on the Global Discussion. Thank you to everybody around the world who's been watching or listening to this episode. Please make sure that you like, follow, subscribe, do all the things I need you to do to help support this podcast. And I hope you'll meet me back here for more discussions with creatives, leaders, and thinkers. So thank you, Jennifer. It's been wonderful to catch up with you today. Simon, thank you so much. Absolute pleasure.